Well, hello again. Uh, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Uh, if you're going to be using the Pew Bibles, I believe you'll find that on page 944. We're here in our third <clears throat> part of this series, working through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And I have explained you can roughly break up Paul's letter to the Galatians in three parts. Chapters 1 and 2 is kind of like a history where Paul lays out his personal history and his historic calling. Chapters 3 and 4 is the theological heartbeat of the letter. And then chapters uh, 5 and 6 are the ethical portion or maybe applicational portion of the letter. Uh, so these next couple of weeks, we're going to slow down a bit so we can really try and listen carefully to Paul's theology. Um, this morning's sermon will be a bit theologically heavy because I'm trying to set in place some foundational pieces, which hopefully will help to make better sense of Paul's argument that runs through these middle chapters. Uh, by all means, come grab me afterwards if you have further questions. Uh, but I think we'll find that Paul's letter here is a fascinating example and lesson in how we are to read the Bible. He actually gives us a Bible reading class. So I hope that we will see those things this morning. With that, we'll go ahead and read Galatians 3, verses 1 through 14. Paul is very feisty in this section. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So I ask again, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? or by believing what you heard. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under curse, as it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God, because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Well, this is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> well, to those of you who know uh, our family's story, it was about a little over 15 years ago that my wife, Jessica, was diagnosed with a terminal lung condition. And praise God, it is treatable, uh, but over the years, her condition has had us in and out of many hospitals. And also, praise God, is that many of these stories, in hindsight, are quite humorous. Here is one of them. Uh, it was, I forget how many years ago, but we were at Portland Providence Hospital in a recovery room for a procedure that Jess was having. And they had one of those little, like, curtain sheets that, you know, closes off your area. And it was supposed to have all these, like, little encouraging, you know, quips and statements uh, for those sitting in a recovery room. 
Words like peace and be gentle popped up in a recurring pattern. Well, then I looked closely and I saw one of them said, speak your truth, which I couldn't help but laughing at, telling people lying in a hospital recovery bed that they should speak their truth. Doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Add to that the fact that you're being told to speak your truth in a hospital named Providence, but we'll pass all that. One of the longer quotes of these curtains said this. It said, you are a child of the universe. No less than the trees and the stars, you have a right to be here. And whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. I remember how encouraged Jess was to find out that she had a right to be there in the hospital recovery bed at Portland Providence. I remember her, her, her just being boiling over with happiness and realizing that she was a universe child, except the universe was unfolding exactly as it should and causing her suffering. So again, I don't quite know how all that works, uh, but isn't it funny how we all have origin stories that we secretly sneak in? We all try to connect ourselves to a story and one that comes before us. Uh, many Portlanders would probably take great comfort in being universe children, um, I'm not one of them, but in Paul's letter to the Galatians, it is this same phenomenon which is going to drive his argument in chapters 3 and 4. Who are we related to? Who is our origin? How did we get here? How do we get to this relationship with Christ? That is going to be the beating heart which runs through this section. Uh, now, I mentioned a couple weeks ago that in the letter to the Galatians, we have to do this thing called mirror reading like looking in a mirror, where you read Paul's argument, and based off of what he argues, you kind of reconstruct what it was that we think the false teachers were saying. Well, based off his argument, I think we're going to see the false teachers were saying that, yes, Jesus is great, and Paul's gospel is great, and yes, we're only saved by faith in him, but in order to be Abraham's children, you had to keep the law. In particular, he's going to go on to talk about circumcision and other things. But that connection of really, truly being Abraham's children is going to be just hovering in the background. Their connection was, how do we truly be the children of Abraham? And the agitators there in Galatia were saying, just obey the law. Okay? Well, we're going to see Paul is going to argue quite differently. Paul is going to argue from Scripture. There's multiple scriptural quotes in this section. And Paul's going to be arguing from the Old Testament scriptures that that is not who the true children of Abraham are and how they are defined. In fact, Paul is going to tell us precisely who the true children of Abraham are in chapters 3 and 4. And this comes from my argument this morning is this. The true blessing of Abraham is only found through faith in the one who took the curse for his people. There's been a redefinition of who the true children of Abraham are. And it's all hinging upon faith in this one Jesus Christ. Uh, moreover, as I said, Paul is teaching us how to read the Bible here. And we don't get an option of basically reading Paul, the inspired apostle, and seeing how he reads the Old Testament and saying, oh, well, that's cute, Paul. I like the way you do that. I'm going to read it differently. No, Paul's right. He's a better exegete. He's a better Bible reader than we will ever be. So we have to learn to read the Bible from Paul. And so with that, we're going to have our passage this morning is the true blessing of Abraham, and there's the three points, the reception of the Spirit, the testimony of Scripture, and the curse of the law. So first, the reception of the Spirit. <clears throat> uh, look again at verses 1 through 5, 1 through 5. 
You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you the Spirit and work miracles among you by works of the law or by your believing what you heard? Well, again, Paul now is transitioning from the historical portion where he laid out his arguments in chapters 1 and 2. And Paul's argument in chapters 1 and 2 is that his gospel and his apostleship didn't come from any human being. His authority came straight from the risen Lord. Jesus himself appeared to Paul and called him and made him an apostle. And Jesus himself taught Paul the gospel. And so now an implication of Paul's gospel is going to be to engage with these false teachers, these agitators in Galatia. Well, despite this firm foundation that Paul seemed to have laid there in Galatia about his gospel, that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as we saw last week, these false teachers had showed up and apparently they had stirred up enough trouble. Uh, Their argument went something like this. Paul's gospel is weak sauce. That's a technical term, weak sauce, by the way. Anyway, Paul's argument and Paul's gospel isn't the whole gospel. You need to also keep the law. And so Paul, though, as we saw last week or two weeks ago in the opening of this letter, said that if anybody changes his gospel, anathema, they are to be accursed. And that's why he speaks to them so sharply, twice calling them fools in this section. It's not because Paul is cranky. It's because Paul is saying, if you do that, you are denying the sufficiency of Christ. Now, given the fact that Paul has already introduced this topic of circumcision last week with Titus, saying Titus was not willing to be circumcised, you might summarize these rhetorical questions Paul asks like this. You could say, are you really so foolish as to think you can now move on to perfection by means of severing a piece of your flesh? Circumcision. That's that's the argument the agitators are bringing forward. And Paul's rhetorical argument is meant to sting. It's meant to set them back on their seats. But how he engages the topic is with the Spirit. Did you see how he brought up? Did you receive the Spirit? That's the first time he mentions it in this letter. Why does he bring up the Spirit? Well, it's because in the Old Testament prophets, we were told that the Spirit will fill God's people as a part of the new covenant. I think of Joel 2 or Ezekiel 36, these passages, where it makes this promise that in the last days, the Spirit will fall and fill God's people. At Pentecost, Peter said this is to fulfill what was spoken of by Joel. So Paul's argument goes like this. We are no longer under the old covenant. We are under the new covenant. And now that we're under the new covenant, we've received the Spirit. We're members of the Spirit. We can't go back. We can only go forward. All the way back in Numbers 11.29, Moses had longed for the day, oh, would that God's people would have his spirit. And that day finally comes. And now the Galatians have been tricked into thinking it'd be better to go back to Moses. This is one of those arguments that will continue to play out in the New Testament. And the book of Hebrews gives us this in great detail. Uh, Hebrews 8 quotes a big section from the New Covenant promises of Jeremiah, and the, the author there comes to the culmination of his argument saying this, in speaking of a new covenant, 
He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete is growing old and ready to vanish away. So in other words, the moment the announcement of the new covenant was coming, the moment those prophets said there's going to be a new covenant, the old was already passe. It was already vanishing, as Hebrews says. So to live as new covenant members and try and go back and live under the old covenant is a huge mistake. That's why Paul is so crisp. But let me take a moment to explain what a covenant is. So biblically, at the simplest level, a covenant is God's means of entering into a relationship with his people. We think of a marriage covenant, two people are entering into a relationship together. Uh, That's precisely what is happening here. And what God is saying is, there's only one way to be in relationship with me now that Jesus has come. It's by faith in the Son who loved me and gave himself for me, as Paul said in chapter 2. So even though there's a number of covenants in the Old Testament, as we'll see, and as Paul will use to argue his point here, the new covenant is the only way to access God from now on. And Paul's rhetorical questions here are getting at that very thing. Now that the Spirit has come, the new age has come. And with the new age comes the only way to access Jesus through his blood. Notice what that means then, practically. That means humans don't get to define our relationship to God. God defines our relationship. Let me use a silly example. How many of you remember a small child negotiating the amount of dinner that they get so they can still have dessert? I'm sure you've seen this. Well, can I get three peas and a half of a chicken strip and then I can get dessert still? I mean, we still do this as as adults. We just don't have another adult or parent that we have to negotiate with. It's just our doctor that we have to negotiate with, uh, saying, well, I mean, I, you know, I ate some of the salad before I had that chocolate cake, right? Uh, well, that's the way that we process life. We so often want to set the terms of how things work, of how we relate to other people. And likewise, that's how our human nature, since the fall, has sought to engage with God. Well, God, of course I want you, but I want you on my terms. But the point that Paul's making, undergirding these two chapters, is that God's the one who defines the covenant. Uh, One theologian has put it this way, uh, God, I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. Uh, Not too much, you know, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. Uh, I don't want so much gospel that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies, cherish self-denial, contemplate missionary service in an alien culture. Now I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like enough gospel to make my family secure and my children well-behaved, but not so much that I find my ambitions redirected or my giving greatly enlarged. I would like about $3 worth of gospel, please. Now, none of us would ever be crass enough or maybe honest enough to say it quite like that. But friends, every time we try to relate to God on our own terms, that's what we're doing. That's why these matters of the biblical covenants are so important, is because they're showing us that God is the one who sets the terms of our relationship together. In a marriage covenant, both partners swear the same vows to each other, or at least they should. Uh, But that's not the way that it works with God. God sets the terms. And this is why all sin has rightly been called a de-godding of God. It started back in the garden, did it not? When God gives his rule, and Eve is convinced to renegotiate 
And Adam sits idly by and goes along with this renegotiated terms. See, we may think it's silly for the Galatians to want to go back to the Mosaic Covenant. I mean, we're Western affluent, you know, Westerners, and the idea of uh, adhering to all those crazy cleanliness laws just seems really weird to us. But don't be mistaken. We all try to renegotiate the covenant. We all try to find ways of saying, well, I'd like about $3 worth of gospel, please. Let's not overdo it. Maybe for some of you, it's a matter of overcommitment. Uh, meaning that your temptation is to do so much for God that you end up in a situation where maybe God owes you. This is the picture you get in the elder brother of the prodigal son story. I've always obeyed. He's done so much, he just kind of feels God owes him. And for some of us here this morning, that will be our temptation. Uh, that'll be the way that we tend to want to try and change the covenant, is we do so much for God, we kind of expect a certain rate of return. But maybe for others, it's an under-commitment. Uh, it's an unwillingness to truly commit to God's people in a particular place, to walking out your discipling life with them. Uh, it's an unwillingness to let old traditions be challenged and changed because that's just not quite where we're at. Friends, we don't define the covenant. God does. All of our attempts to access God in our own way are attempts to de-God God to enthrone ourselves. And even as Christians, we'll continue to be tempted to these things, which is why we do life together in the one another's in the local church, of finding ways of walking these things out together, of confessing sin to one another. Yes, I've been trying to redefine the covenant this week. That's a great way to think about these things. But Paul is going to go back to the Old Testament itself and argue that they had misunderstood these things. And so that's why we have our second point, the testimony of Scripture. Look at verses 6 through 9. So also Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So notice, Paul is saying his reading of the Old Testament is the right reading. Scripture says, and then he's going to quote Scripture multiple times. And in particular, Paul says that if you misunderstand who the true children of Abraham are, you're misreading the true intention of the Old Testament. That's Paul's argument here. Uh, now, you've probably heard, if you've been in church for a very long, that the Abrahamic covenant consists of three parts, land, seed, blessing. That's a, a common way of summarizing um, that covenant. There's other passages, but Genesis 12, 1 through 3 is one of the central ones where this is laid out. Well, depending upon the church tradition you grew up in, um, you may have been taught that there are very tight definitions of that promise, and they have to be fulfilled in a very tight way. Uh, some of my dearest friends are, are looking forward to a very literal fulfillment of those things in the millennium. They say the eternal promises given to Abraham will be fulfilled in the millennium. Again, I have dear friends, Christians are going to disagree on this for years. My shortest answer is the millennium is not eternal. So if Abraham really got eternal promises, the millennium doesn't fulfill them no matter how you cut the mustard. It just doesn't work. But let me make the longer argument that I think Paul lays out here. Paul is going to argue in these next two chapters that the land, seed, and blessing promises are fulfilled in Christ. Here he's going to do blessing, 
Next week, he's going to look at seed, and then at the end of chapter 4, he'll look at the land. And he's going to say that everything drives us back to Jesus. And his rebuke of the Galatians and these false teachers is that you don't get to define who the true children of Abraham are based off of your understanding of the Old Testament. Jesus gets to define it. And so that's how come Paul answers the way he does. Well, these four verses are his thesis statement that he's going to support in the rest of this chapter in chapter 4. And the first thing Paul does is he quotes from Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Notice the logic. If Abraham believed God and it was counted as righteous, then his standing with God has nothing to do with keeping the law. He's going to unpack that more later in the chapter. Then Paul elaborates in verse 7. Understand then, those who have faith are the children of Abraham. You could say like father, like son. Do you see how Paul's argument is unfolding? Uh, if Abraham had access to God by faith, then those who have faith like Abraham are his true children, not because they kept the law. Paul then supports his argument even more in verse 8, building and quoting again from Scripture, this time from Genesis 12:3. God, our Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Notice what Paul's doing. He's saying if you read the Abraham account rightly, what you're going to understand is that the purpose of the promise given to Abraham was always meant to bless the nations. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Paul argues that was the original purpose of the Abrahamic covenant. It was to be a means, a channel through which God's blessing to the nations would flow. And so that's the purpose, if you were, of that original promise. And then in verse 9, he tells us that this blessing has been realized for all those who have the faith of Abraham. Abraham's purpose was to drive us to Christ. And all those who have faith in Christ are now those children of Abraham, he says. But see, friends, I would just say we need to read the Bible like Paul. And Paul's showing us explicitly what that covenant is. So while Christians will disagree, I would still go back and say Paul is the inspired interpreter. And Paul says that the Abrahamic covenant was driving us to a fulfillment in Christ, in justification by faith, in this gift of the Spirit that's come with the new age. So again, to put it in covenantal categories, the Abrahamic covenant found its telos, its goal, its fulfillment in Jesus and the new covenant in his blood. There, there's no other way to access God. Uh, we don't come to him on the basis of any other covenant. There's only one, the new covenant in Jesus' blood. Uh, that is why Paul has been arguing that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There's no other path. There's no other road to get to God. Uh, let me use an illustration. The Ohio River is the second largest river by volume, depending upon how you measure it, in the United States. It's a massive river. It's a thousand miles long. It, it feeds the, the whole section there of Pennsylvania and that valley. It's huge. But the moment it dumps into the Mississippi, it's gone. It's not that it's gone, of course, but its purpose, its telos, its goal has been reached. The Ohio feeds the far greater Mississippi. So friends, the glorious beauty of the Abrahamic covenant is the means, the channel through which God's blessings are being poured out, not just on Jews, but on Gentiles, the whole world. 
Everything is driving us to Christ. So the glory of all those old covenants are meant to be pointers, markers driving us to Jesus. And so he is the only way we have access. But depending upon what church tradition you grew up in, you might be saying, well, wait a minute. What about Romans 11? And what about the promise that God's going to save a whole bunch of Jews? What do we do with that? Say, yes, and praise God. Paul writes Romans 10 before he writes Romans 11 to explain to us how these things work. And Romans 10, 9 through 13 says this, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, notice Paul arguing from Scripture again, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame, for there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can't get to Romans 11 without going through Romans 10. Romans 10 sets the guidelines for how Romans 11 works. So praise God that he will fulfill his promises and bring in a great ingathering of ethnic Jews, as Romans 11 says. But he's doing it through the means of the new covenant, through faith in Christ, as Romans 10 tells us he must. That, my friends, is what Paul is saying here. There's no other access. There's only one way. Or as he writes it in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. So by way of application... We need to learn to read the Bible like Paul. And what that means, friends, is that we are not first and foremost Bible readers in a silo. Now hear me and don't hear me. What I am saying is you're not allowed to read the Bible only alone. What I'm not saying is that you should never read the Bible alone. You should always read the Bible. Yes, you should do it alone. But there's no verse in the Bible that actually tells you just read the Bible all by yourself in a, in a tree and then come down and declare to the world what it means. No, that's typically how heresy has come up and how big, huge problems happen. No, we're to read the Bible in the community of the faith, of the saints. Uh, we're to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, Jude says. We're to read the Bible together. And that means being sharpened by other Christians who've read the Bible differently. Engaging in church history. Uh, they don't always get it right, of course, but they do cause us to stop and listen and learn from them. Uh, one of my favorite verses in Scripture is Proverbs 27, 17. Iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. And I love to say, iron doesn't sharpen iron by cuddling. It happens by contact. It, it happens by having a different idea and coming up against it. Uh, now, that's not mean contact. It's sharpening contact. But if we never engage with others, then Proverbs 18, 17 is true. Well, the one who states his case first seems right until someone else comes along and examines him. So, friends, in our Bible reading, we need to be those who are doing it in the community of the faith. Uh, at one level, that means church history. How have others thought about these things in years past? And also at the local church, in men's and women's Bible studies. I'm so thankful for the men's and women's Bible studies that we have that give the members of this church an opportunity to read the Bible together. Uh, we'll be doing similar things in community groups and during Sunday school. But we need to be those who are working on reading the Bible in community. Otherwise, we can get off on our own, and we can come up with weird ideas. And sometimes those ideas can grow into whole systems of theology that people hold to for hundreds of years. 
we need to be those who come back and resubmit our ideas to Paul and to Scripture. And this is why Paul's last point will seek to further prove his case through reading the Old Testament with a myriad of quotes. Look at verses 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, quoting the Old Testament, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law will be justified before God, because, quoting the Old Testament, the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, quoting, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Do you see how Paul's argument works? He states a point and supports it with Scripture. He states a point and supports it with Scripture all the way through, building his case. Well, what is his case? Well, he's seeking to prove that, again, the Abrahamic blessing was always intended on going to the world, to the nations, and not through the law. Why then the law? Well, that's the question he's going to ask next week, so you've got to come back for that answer. But look at his argument here. Verse 10, he shows us, since no one is able to do everything written in the law, anyone who tries to live according to the law is under a curse, because nobody can keep the law perfectly. Then in verse 11, Paul says, even the Old Testament shows us that the just, the righteous, will live by faith, quoting from Habakkuk 2, 4. And then Paul comes to the culmination of his argument, as you could say, in verses 13 and 14. And he's quoting the Old Testament. But in that passage, he quotes from Deuteronomy 21, 23. Uh, See, the Israelites in that passage are not allowed to leave someone hanging overnight or into the night. They had to take them down. Otherwise, there would be a curse on that person and then potentially the land. And Paul, though, applies this to Jesus. Now, in the original context, that was not about Jesus. So what's going on here? Well, Paul sees the whole Bible as driving us to Christ. And what he's saying is there's a whisper, there's a a type, a whisper in that Old Testament passage is that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. And particularly, that's why you need to take them down. And he says that that whisper back there was driving us to Jesus. So maybe to put this in application terms, friends, the Bible's not about you. Just take a deep breath, just breathe it out. The Bible's not about you. Uh, it's about Jesus. Uh, I know the most popular books around today love to tell you how the Bible you know, just exists to make you feel better. And the worst case is to make you wealthy and happy and healthy. Uh, and, but even in better cases, so oftentimes the Bible is treated as though it's this book of morals, it's Aesop's fables for our modern lives. This is why countless sermons have been preached on dare to be a Daniel or David and who are the Goliaths in your life. Uh, Who are those giants that you need to conquer? No, Paul doesn't read the Bible that way. Paul reads the Bible from beginning to end as bending around the cradle and the cross and the crown of Christ. So the Bible lesson we get from Paul here is this. First, he reads it in its original context. Yes, he understands what the original person meant, but then he also sees, how does this connect me to Christ? How is this pointing us at what the Bible is really about? And this is really about Jesus. So every part of the Bible has to be read in its overarching context of Jesus. 
This is why Tim Keller was exactly right when he gives all these examples of how the Bible is not about you, but it's about Jesus. Keller says this, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that now cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. See, Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and to go out in the void. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserved so that we, like Jacob, could receive only wounds of grace and discipline. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who sat at the right hand of the king and yet he forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses who stood in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates the better covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who when struck with the rod of God's justice but now gives us water in the desert. Friends, the Bible's not about us. It's about him. That's why he's the true Passover lamb, the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, light and bread, and on and on we can go. We misread the Bible if we aim it at ourselves or primarily at Israel or primarily at America or anyone else. The Bible's about Christ and him crucified. So maybe this morning you're visiting and you're not a Christian. I'd be willing to bet that you've probably bumped into over the years some examples or explanations of the Bible that treat it kind of like a moral book, a a book of be this way or do that. Maybe that is what turned you off to the Bible. But friends, look at how Paul reads the Bible here in Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Read those two verses again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing giving to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. You see, friends, the the message of the Bible in short form is laid out here. God created a good world to relate with his people. But his people denied his covenant. They denied his law, his relationship, and decided to build it their own way. And so ever since then, humanity has had this gap that is unbridgeable between them and God. But God keeps reaching across to grab a people for himself. And finally, one day, he sent his own son who took on flesh. And he actually kept the law when none of us could. But even though he kept the law perfectly, he was still nailed to a tree, taking the curse which the law said had to fall on all those who do not perfectly keep the law, which is us. And friends, by taking the curse, he now offers this incredible good news to all those who repent and trust in him alone, who allow God to define the covenant, who allow God to define how we relate to him. All those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So friend, if if you have questions about this, I'd love to speak with you afterward. But that is the Bible. That's what it's getting at. And if we had Paul's understanding of the Bible, all those who read through those Old Testament passages would see Jesus shining in the background. 
Maybe that's you this morning, and, and you know that that's what Isaiah 44 4 was doing when Dean read it earlier. See, in the context of that passage, the promise was clearly made to Jacob. It was clearly to Israel. God said to them, I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. In that passage, spirit and blessing are in parallel, and they go on your descendants, your offspring, which is clearly speaking to Israel. And yet Isaiah went on and said, but I will have others who call on me. And that's why Paul can quote that passage here and say, the friends, all those who by faith receive the promise of Jesus, that all those who by faith turn and repent and trust in Christ, they are now new covenant believers. They've been made alive and indwelt by the Spirit and received the true blessing of Abraham. Because, friends, the true blessing of Abraham is only found through faith in the one who took the curse for us. Now, Lord willing, next week we will see how Paul is going to keep this same argument going, but he's going to switch from the blessing of Abraham to the seed, the true descendants of Abraham. But for now, friends, I hope that you're encouraged to see that Jesus is truly the author and perfecter of our faith. And the whole Bible is driving us to that reality. That he is the lamb for sinners slain. And he has risen and he has sent his spirit to call a people to himself for his glory and our good. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the fact that it all points us and drives us back to Jesus. That he truly is the one who has paid it all. Lord, that we, we do not build our way to you because he has completed everything. So help us to trust in him truly. And we pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close?